like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me, and now I can't even swatch in store anymore. Thankfully, I found the Il Makiyash Power Match Quiz. It literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds. Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. You are at the beach, but you have no views of the beach. And then you got to turn 180 degrees, go up the stairs. The stairs change from the concrete floors to the white terrazzo. And then as you're looking up, you get this just portal view of the sky. And then when you get up there, you got to do another 180 and then you get the beach view. And that is super important because it elevates the importance of that beach view. It makes it much stronger. And it's the same thing. It's like if you walked into a room and all of a sudden, boom, open the door and you just saw everything, it's boring. And by the way, it's the same with people. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie. And this is Clever. Today, we're talking to Los Angeles-based architect Dan Brune. Dan was born in Tel Aviv and moved to LA when he was seven years old. He's been on a direct path to architecture since he was a little kid. With architecture degrees from both USC and Harvard, he's been on fire since he became a professional. A devotee of both modernism and minimalism, his work is anything but cold and austere. His innovative and poetic use of material, light, and volume belies his other passions of music and painting. 
Plus, he locked eyes with a mountain lion and lived to tell the tale. Let's talk to Dan. My name is uh, Dan Brune. I'm originally from Tel Aviv. I live in Los Angeles. I'm an architect by profession, and I would just say, uh, you know, a creative person, an artist in general. I believe that creating space, that's the fundamental thing of architecture, is a way to better people's experience through life. The spaces that we take in are not just about the aesthetics, but it could be altering of moods. And I wholeheartedly believe that good architecture creates good, positive behavior. Yes, we do too. Hallelujah. Yeah. Okay, so let's dig into you personally. We always like to go way back to the foundation, mm -hmm. to use an architecture and building term. Yes. So why don't you tell us about your very beginning? Like, what was your childhood like? I understand you were born in Tel Aviv. What was your family like? And when did you move to Los Angeles? Tell us that whole story. Yeah, so you got it. Yeah, I'm originally from Tel Aviv. Grew up there. Uh, and I, I was born there and it was in the 80s and I moved to the States in uh, second grade. So I started second grade here and it was a really, really interesting experience and having the juxtaposition of the two culturally and actually obviously personally and it ended up being professionally. There was a change for all of that. And I would start by saying, you know, Tel Aviv is a city that probably inspired me to become an architect. And it was the city that I owe a lot of my aesthetic uh, eye to. And partially being the fact that it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and it's called the White City. And it has the most amount of Bauhaus architecture in the world. And so I was raised around these modernist ideals of less is more. And I got to live that as a kid. And that, that brings, I think, a lot of authenticity to my design work now. And what was interesting is when, you know, I came to the States, all of a sudden we were living in, in quotes, I would call a Spanish style home, Mediterranean, whatever you want to call it. But it was, it was awful. You know, I grew up in my hometown. You had like floor to ceiling windows and sliding doors and open plan, clean lines. And all of a sudden I'm in this dreadful, dark, I don't even know what the hell, you know, what shape and whatever it was, but it, it was really bad. And I, I started to question it, I think, even at a young age when I was like seven years old. And that really, you know, it really inspired me. And a part of the transition was also, you know, on a personal level, since we're getting into that, you know, it was very different clothes-wise, food-wise, everything. And, you know, not learning the language and learning that. And so, honestly, uh, before knowing English, my drawing skills were probably better because that was my way of communicating. I remember I used to sit in the garden with a friend of mine, and we would just draw cars. He was Japanese and I was, you know, Israeli. And that was our way of communicating and doing recess. And it was incredible. That is incredible. That's the universal language. You can communicate through image. Yeah. And what a stark contrast from the architecture in Tel Aviv to what must have felt like a downgrade to a dark, claustrophobic space. Absolutely. Did you associate that darkness with your new country? My first introduction to America was actually New York, which was great. So my aunt and the, her family are all there. And so I got to see that, you know, eyes wide open, like, oh, my God, this is America. I mean, this, this is insane. You could imagine like an eight-year-old boy all of a sudden seeing 
yeah, the Twin Towers were there, the Empire State Building, yeah. Toys R Us. <laughs> when I was a kid to get Legos, my grandfather, you know, he would travel and bring something back or my aunt came from New York and brought something back. Our toy store, the whole thing was probably, you know, 200 square feet and you had to order something through a catalog in order to get something. It was, it was a very different, Israel is very different than it is today. And it was a, a stark contrast. Now, the darkness wasn't something that I saw, you know, like, oh, my God, this is a morbid place to be. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I saw it as a major eye opener. You know, all of a sudden, I mean, the consumerism of America was a major eye opener. Yeah. Israel at the time was was a lot more socialist than it is now. And, and you know, the capitalist uh, mentality of the states was definitely seen upon me. And it was great. You know, it was all positive. You know, it wasn't the climate of what we have today. But... Wow. I mean, I was intrigued by it. I was wondering why we live in such dismal conditions, literally. And I remember I started to pick up, there was these book series of little stickers that you could make house plans. And I started to do that. I remember too, but I, I, I obviously noticed the difference and it got me thinking for sure, for sure. And LA was a lot different than it is today. I mean, it was a dump to be honest, you know, it was not nearly what it is right now. So you've been here long enough to see a lot of our major cities sort of evolve and transform. And there's been this real cleanup of I've seen it happen with cities like Providence and New York City and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And that cleanup is, you know, a double edged sword. But let's talk about do you know why your parents decided to move to the States? And did that lodge in you as a positive or a negative in terms of your formative years? Oh, yeah, I mean, it was a major directive. My dad went to school here in the 60s. Okay. So he went to college in, L in LA in the 60s, and uh, which you can imagine, uh, that must have been really, really exciting. Yeah. I think he got to see the Doors perform live. He missed the Beatles, which is something that is really sad. He was here when they were at the Hollywood Bowl, and I'm like, how could you do that? No. <laughs> okay, so then came back from Israel to America, and he was approached by a company that makes uh, water filtration systems that are... It was an Israeli patent. What was really cool about it is it just used the pressure that's built in the system, in the filter, to clean itself without using any external power. Mm. And uh, he became the product rep in, he had a choice, West Coast, East Coast. He chose the West Coast. Yeah. Obviously, he had a good experience here. And he was like, let's bring everybody back here. Okay. And honestly, for many years, I was like, why did you make that mistake? Like, that was just, it, it ate me up. Like, we could have been in New York. Come on. Like, that would have been so cool. But I think it was a really great decision and I'm, I'm really happy about it. But for many years, I had a big, I have to be honest, I had a big struggle, not with America as much as I guess having been the disposition of finding a new home and not finding myself fitting in as a home. Yeah. Los Angeles to me wasn't, wasn't uh, I, I, I wasn't connected to it. I've lived in many different places around the globe and it took me years to find L.A. in quotes home. And now it is. As an adolescent, not connected to your surroundings, feeling like a fish out of water, like a little bit out of place. So that's the 80s in Los Angeles, right? Correct. 86 is when I got here. There's also a pretty powerful punk movement going on here at the same time of disaffected mm -hmm. youth. Did you connect with them or what was your experience of adolescence like and... What kind of stretchy challenges did you have to go through to form your adult identity? You know what? I did not connect with them. I, I had my own bubble. I mean, I was, 
I had created my own identity, I think, which was a misidentity, right? It was very difficult. You can imagine, okay, so in Israel, there were uh, school uniforms. The school system in Israel is built upon, it's changed since then, and I, I can't speak about it now, but it was built upon the British system. And so I had like my little polyester pants. Uh, mm -hmm. I think they were green and a dark green and light green shirt. And then my penny loafers, literally. Mm -hmm. And I came to the States and I was so excited to have a penny to put in my penny loafers. <laughs> I remember that. But, uh, you know, everybody was wearing MC Hammer pants. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I remember that. Uh, I was totally confused. People used to make fun of me. I used to bring a Nutella sandwich. And everybody called it a shit sandwich. They were like, what the hell? Because peanut butter, that's all you guys had. There was no such thing as Nutella. And, you know, then somebody would taste it. It would be like, oh, my God, the forbidden fruit. And I was able to trade that for Doritos. Yeah. And I remember the first time I had Doritos, like, what the hell is a Dorito? <laughs> and all of a sudden, my fingers are orange. I mean, it was it was profound. You know, snacks were different. Everything was really different, really, really different. And it was obviously, you had to bring something back. I remember when my aunt brought bubblelicious gum to israel and i was like what the hell like i mean we had such different things so all of these things were profound to me and honestly to find my own solace because i couldn't uh connect to a lot of the kids uh -huh. i had built a lot of like little model cars at home i would paint as well woodshop was my favorite thing in the world all these things so the creative side of me was and again, the non-language language, I think that was the strongest thing for me. Finding solace and creativity. Yeah. Yeah. But it made me a loner. You know, I, I would sit. I remember next to the garage, there was like a little workshop. I would rather sit there by myself than to make false friends, I think. Yeah. But you mentioned like when you first came to Los Angeles, you spent time just drawing with a friend. And that's kind of how you communicated. But I do think like creative people tend to be a little bit more aloof just because they get so into their own, like whatever it is that they're making. It's very personal. I agree. At the, at the same time, I, I got really lucky because, you know, I was able to adapt. And I think that's one of, one of the things I'm really lucky about. You know, I'm able to take on the confines of wherever I am and kind of find my place. Mm -hmm. So I would say by the time I got to middle school, I found my way and, you know, I had all my friends and I had my popular, you know, moment uh, and, every, and everything was fine. You know, I had my I had my fun and that was great. So by the time I got to high school, I wasn't I wasn't that big of yeah. a uh, loner, even though I hated high school. <laughs> I, I loved uh, junior high and elementary, but high, high school was the worst. Oh, no. What happened in high school? It was such a challenge, you know, and I felt like instead of the, the teachers, let's say, I would say challenging you in, in education, they challenged you in literally in fitting in and literally in being a part of their system mm. instead of finding a way to harness my creativity or, or whatever. I, I remember at one point, my counselor basically uh, said I won't amount to anything. Uh, and suggested that I don't apply to college. Uh, what? Yeah, and go to like a junior college because there's no way I'll get to do what I want to do. And mind you, this is so interesting. Her husband was my guitar teacher, which is just like, it's just so weird. I, I, I remember going in there like, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to go there. And I, and I actually remember like tapping a friend of mine's shoulder. I was like, watch me, I'm going to Harvard. And they're like, yeah, right, you're going to Harvard. And I was dumbfounded by that. And uh, It's the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Like crush your spirit as opposed to build it up. Yeah. 
Exactly. And they did. And it, and it was terrible, you know, and it just felt like what, why? And, and, and this is like, not even like an inner city school, right? I was in a coddled neighborhood. It's bizarre that anybody would behave this way. But yeah, and that's the kind of mentality I had. I, I could get into it. I mean, I remember also like, I was a very good student up until sophomore year. And I had this one teacher who just, and it was my trigonometry teacher, and she did not like me for some reason, and basically gave me an ultimatum. Either I fail you, or you walk out and go back to algebra, because you clearly don't know algebra. And I had to take that, because I knew that if I have an F, then there is no way I'm going to college, right? And so all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of high school. I was with all my friends who were, you know, on the, let's say, the advanced placement track, and all of a sudden, I was back taking algebra, which I had taken in junior high. And all of a sudden, I was doing that in my sophomore year. And I was I was beaten down, honestly. I, I just was like, you know what? Fuck this. I give up. I'm tired. Yeah, it's demoralizing. And when the adults that are like in charge of shaping your life are actually sort of convincing you that you're lesser, it's incredibly demoralizing. It's crap. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's total crap. But <laughs> here I am. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I did end up going to USC in architecture. And uh, I think that's where I would say my own identity really began. And that's where I became me. So when you when you went to college, did you know at that point that you wanted to study architecture? Were you like, yes, this is my jam? Uh, well, here's the thing. And this is nuts. My high school, you know, wasn't all bad. They There was architecture classes in high school. So I took four years of different courses in architecture. Oh, now, cool. It was more like a technical thing. Yeah, so I learned about scale. I learned what a building plan is, a section, a site plan, how to build models, all of that. I had all those skills. Wow. And I just was, yeah, nuts, right? Yeah. Nuts. I mean, there was, e- there was even, uh, I took like an advanced engineering course in which I designed a car and that was really fun. Yeah, I mean, I knew it. I, I knew it at seven years old that I wanted to be an architect, quite honestly. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I was lucky enough that this was what I wanted to do and I got to explore it. I didn't know what it fully meant, but yeah. So when I got to USC, it was an architecture program. It was a five-year degree and it was incredible. Wow. It was some of the best years. Oh, that's so cool. And then you went to Harvard? Yes, yeah, fuck that guidance counselor. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So I spent five years at USC architecture school and worked every summer as an intern and then worked two years after that in Los Angeles. And that really gave me my my chops. You know, I really learned everything. Uh, and I suggest anybody who is like interested in doing this, you got to, you know, you got to like find a person to work with, to work for and get inspired and don't give up. Yeah, then I went to Harvard two years also, architecture uh, program, master's degree. Okay, so I echo what Jamie says, fuck that guidance counselor. And um, it sounds like you also, thank God, like sort of bloomed into yourself in college. You found your tribe, you found your calling, you were able to excel at what it is that you're passionate about. That must have done enormous things for your sense of self. Look, at USC, I finally was also successful. You know, at USC, I finally, I was beginning to be a star, you know, and and it felt great. You know, 
the the bullshit that I had gone through at high school of being a, like a, a, a loser, I would say, you know, like in academic side was turned around 180 degrees. Yeah. It was so much fun. So I gained my confidence, you know, and I got to like push myself forward and, and to really shine. It was, it was amazing. Man, that confidence and that validation, it cannot be underestimated. It is, I think it's so much more important than this idea of like, well, tough love and conforming. It's like... <laughs> I agree. I mean, and that's, that's the way I run my office too. Like I'd rather, it's interesting, like Steve Jobs is one of my heroes in one degree and has always been before it was like a popular thing, you know, but when I read his bio and I saw that he thinks the way to get the most out of people is basically, yeah, tough love and demoralize them and make them feel like shit so that they win your love. I think it's exactly the opposite. My mentality is to uh, foster the growth and to encourage when when there is something there. Yeah. Not, not a falsehood. I, I, I think there's a problem with that too. I think, you know, I, I was a teacher at USC and at Harvard. So I saw the other side too. And I saw a generation of kids who are like, everybody's a winner. And I, I have to say not everybody's a winner. And that's, that's complete bullshit. But the ones that are deserve the recognition. The main problem is that we think kids are going to believe this lie. Like kids know when they're not excelling at something or when they haven't found their groove. You can gently tell them so. you're you know, let's help you find something that's maybe more of a fit for you without demoralizing them and convincing them they're shit or they're not going to amount to anything. Correct. There's no there's no positivity in telling somebody they're crap. There's no need to do that. And by the same token, like they don't want to be told they're a winner when they can clearly see they're not measuring up to their peers or they're not like feeling the passion in it. Like, don't lie to me that way either. Exactly. You have to be completely honest with that. I mean, I had I remember I had students who were like, why am I getting a B? Why am I getting a B minus? I'm like, well, you have no creative thinking and this is a creative course. Like, uh, hello. They're like, well, yeah, but you know, in high school, I was getting straight A's. I'm like, yeah, well, in high school, they also fed you the question sheet. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> this is this is architectural studio and life is not going to give you that, right? Like when I write a proposal to a client, I don't know exactly what everything is. I have to take a gamble. I have to figure that out. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That's it. That's what I find so frustrating about like the idea of just forcing kids to memorize stuff forever, like stuff that's not even useful oh, to them, but they're not teaching like real world skills like creative thinking or thinking under pressure mm -hmm. or coming up with like new ideas. I mean, those are things that get you out of any situation in any job or help you succeed. And I just don't understand the mentality of like, make sure you memorize all the capitals of all the states. I mean, I totally agree. But this is why I think architecture program, for example, is such an amazing program because it is only if you go to the basic root of it, it's problem solving and it's creative problem solving again and again and again and again and again. And so it's not memorizing. I didn't have to do that. And by the way, I suck at that. <laughs> I mean, I failed. We had a we had we, we had a course of Japanese history. I literally got a D in that. And I had like begged the teacher for a D just so I don't have to take the class again. <laughs> that was at USC. Meanwhile, any anything that had to do with like architecture and creative thinking was like a straight A. You had mentioned something that I found really interesting. Your first few steps outside of college in the professional world was really where you kind of got your chops, your architectural professional mm -hmm. chops. I want to know, did you work for a firm? Did you go? Yeah, let's yes. talk about your first few steps into the professional world, because it also sounds like you found the right place to do that. And I want to know what your thinking was there. When I got to USC, I had my uh, first year studio instructor. And again, I have to say, 
I was extremely lucky in my education and that I had gotten all like the best teachers and the ones that fit me, except for one. But everybody else was just like, it was so great. So I had this amazing uh, studio instructor freshman year, and he inspired me so much. One of the best things that he ever did was, you know, he worked on my ego and reducing it. And, you know, I was a cocky little kid. Mm -hmm. And basically, it was so funny. So I had finished this project for the final review. And he had come down, and I was in the studio, and he had come down from the upper division courses and just to check up on us. And he saw me, and I'm like looking around. I'm like, oh, look, everybody's still working. I'm done. Ha, ha, ha. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, well, guess what? For the review, he's like, he tore me like apart, but not in a negative way, in a very constructive way of why my project could be better. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he went through it and went boom, 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 one by one by one. And he made me redo the whole project. And I had like a week to do it. All the students laughed at me. They're like, ha ha, look, you got it coming. Mm -hmm. What it taught me was two things. Number one is that I am not the master of the universe, okay, <laughs> which is great. It was very humbling. Yeah. And number two is that, and by the way, I got those lessons all throughout my life and I still do, which is, <laughs> which is great. The next one was to let go of what you created and not be so precious about it. And then the next thing is that maybe the next solution will be even better. And that was incredible. And it was. And I recognized what happened through that. Okay. So then I approached him as the year ended. I said, John, please, I want an internship. And, you know, he's like, well, I just gave away that internship. I was like, oh, man, you know, and I prodded him on. And then two weeks later, he's like, you know what? Let's do it. You got it. And I got my internship. And I worked there uh, for that summer and the next five summers of school. Can you tell us his name, the name of his firm? Yeah, John Friedman, John Friedman Alice Kim Architects. I love to shout out the people who are really positive mentors in people's lives. Absolutely, absolutely. I learned so much there. And then one of the best things that happened was, uh, and I have to say, it was a small firm, so I got a very intimate relationship to the leads on all the projects. But one thing that happened that was very interesting was that when I graduated and I started working there, the projects I had I were I was assigned to actually kept dying. And I was like, no, this sucks. Meanwhile, I remember like a new employee all of a sudden got a restaurant and another one was working on a school. And everything I touched was like falling apart. Nothing to do with just bad luck. And then he gave me this other project and what was so cool about it is that it just grew and grew and grew. So it started as being like an interior remodel. And then it ended up being like even deeper remodel. And then it ended up the, the owner bought another side of the project. And I have to say, you know, my boss at the time, that's, you know, my, who was my mentor, gave me access to meeting with the city, meeting with the client, uh, working with the contractor and working alongside of my boss. And, you know, I got to do the vertical integration of everything. And so that meant that by the time it was time to open up my own office, I had learned all these steps. And it wasn't, you know, some people end up working, let's say, for a star architect, okay? And then that star architect or that commercial big-time corporate firm, they'll put them in a the corner and they'll say, okay, Sarah, why don't you do all of our competition boards? And, oh, okay, Peter, you do the renderings. Oh, you're good at blah, 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 blah. And that's terrible. That, you don't want to do that in any profession. 
uh, if you're learning, you got to find an office and you got to find a mentor. You got to find somebody that will take you through all the different steps of the field. Even if you don't want to work for somebody else and you, 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 you know, you want to be an employee, I think it's important to at least understand the different aspects of what the profession that you're in takes. Yeah. Well, you got a sense of everything that's involved in the project, which is amazing. And you touched on something that I think so many people don't realize is you go to work at a place that's maybe got a huge name or you might feel like a small fish in a big pond and you might get lost in there. But you also get what I call is the Popeye effect, where you just get these really strong forearms. Like maybe you get exceptionally good at drafting or CAD or doing the competition boards, but you don't get everything else that you need to be a well-rounded superhero. And it sounds like you chose a place and a mentor that enabled you to get all of your muscles flexing. Absolutely. Now, I, I completely agree with that. Now, the interesting thing is if we go to my current career path, for example, what's so interesting is that because I did that and I left early in a way, you know, I, okay, so then I went to Harvard and uh, when I finished, I started my own office. Like the first year I got back and I got back to LA. Now, what's interesting is as, and I'll share some of the challenges. I think a lot of people, when they talk about their success, they talk about successes. I'll, I'll talk about, let's say the challenges of what DBA faces in the future and what, where people are coming to us with. So as we're seeking out the larger projects that are more interesting to us, some of the prospective clients will, be, will ask us, well, have you ever done that before? Or have you ever worked on that before? Versus, let's say I did work for this Starkitect or this bigger office, and I could, I could easily say, yeah, I was involved in X, Y, and Z, you know, and I worked there for another, you know, five years. I don't have that. So I think, you know, it goes both ways. Oh, okay. I could easily see, like, if I, had to, if I had to recommend to somebody, I would say, you know what, do this. Work for both in your path. I don't know which one's first or second, but it would be amazing. Yeah, that's good advice. I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me, and now I can't even swatch in store anymore. Thankfully, I found the Il Maquillage Power Match Quiz. It literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds. Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. So you, you finish Harvard, you start your own firm. You knew you wanted to start your own firm for a while, correct? Absolutely. 
Was there a particular project where you were like, this is the project that that's definitely helped me take my practice to the next level? Two of them. It came down to this. When I was, I strongly believe in just the power of people. That means relationships and being genuine with that. You, you can't fake that. So when I was working at the other office, when let's say a uh, product rep would come in, if there was somebody that was interesting to me, I befriended them. And that was, that was very important to me. When I graduated Harvard and I started my own office, I, I didn't start my own office that quickly. Let's not you know, demystify that. Uh, so I was teaching at USC and I was sharing an apartment with a friend of mine. And then that same product rep called me and said, hey, you know, we're opening up a showroom in uh, the Bay Area. Are you interested? And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. Like, this is so fucking cool. I mean, to get into commercial work is really difficult. And then to get into, let's say, retail or showroom spaces where you are, you are the brand is intense, is insane. I was 25 years old. A company called Caesar Stone had hired me to design their flagship showroom for the nation in uh, the Bay Area. Wow. It was intense. It was crazy. That's like winning yeah. a lottery. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. I designed this space and, and it was nuts. And, and I got to work hand in hand before Caesar Stone became, you know, a public company. And, you know, I owe it to, to two people, Maggie Amir and Arik Tendler. And he was the CEO and she was the A&D rep. And those two are just, and, and Maggie's still my angel. You know, she's my guardian angel. She's my, super important in, in my, in my life. She basically, you know, brought me onto the project. And then when the project was over, this was really interesting. And this is how my career path continued. So, you know, they invested half a million dollars into this space and, uh, and they wanted to, you know, to win awards, do all this. And I remember going to them and said, hey, guys, you know, we need to get architectural photography. They're like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. We got the guy. And I'm like, your guy is a food photographer who does countertop photos and close ups. No, that's not the guy. Now, at USC, I had taken architecture uh, photography using, uh, and this is like ancient, a four by five camera, which is a film camera that uses four inch by five inch film, literally. And it looks like one of those, if you've seen like 1920s photos of like a huge camera that you put the tarp mm -hmm. over your head to take a photo, literally that. And so I had bought one of those used and they were cheap at the time. Digital cameras were not the thing yet. You couldn't use that. And I had went to Sammy's camera here in LA and I had little tiny photos that, you know, I'd taken with my 35 millimeter regular camera. And I was asking the clerk about uh, renting um, lighting equipment because actually, if I take it back, when I was working at the other office, I used to go on to the film shoots, the, the photo shoots, and I would watch, you know, the photographer and what he would do and kind of learn. Anyway, as that's happening, the clerk and I are talking and he asked me, you know, why I went to school, what am I doing? And then this woman walked up to the counter and started talking to him. And I'm like, hey, what the hell, you know? And uh, he's like, hey, I want you to meet Hedy. And I'm like, okay. And I say, hi, Hedy is Sammy's wife. Sammy and Hedy own Sammy's camera. And she goes to me, hey, so he's, he's, you're an architect, huh? She's like, we just bought a beach property. Are you interested in doing a beach house? And I'm like, is this a joke? What? And uh, she's like, where, where, where did you go to school? I'm like, well, I went to Harvard. She's like, oh, my daughter just graduated from there. Not in architecture school. She's like, what are you doing? And I showed her the photo. She's like, well, this is cool. Uh, I met Sammy. They showed me the property. And 
I got the project like a month later and it's insane. I, I mean, I, you, you talk about being at the right place at the right time with, I mean, just like a godsend. And that project ended up getting published all over the place. And those two things put me on the map. Was that the flip-flop house? Yeah, that's the flip-flop oh, house. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that was the Sammy's yeah. camera dynasty that you designed that for. Oh, yeah. And they are, I, I have only the best things to say about them. I Actually, I just spoke to her about an hour ago. We're building them another house. And they're just the sweetest, most real people that I probably know. And in the article, if anybody wants, I mean, looks at it in New York Times, it's basically it says like she's my second mother. And it's it's very true. You know, it's very true. The relationship that I've built with them is is super strong. I mean, you can't really beat like in person, like human contact and no. relationships, e- even now in this age. I agree. When you love someone, it's so easy to put a lot of passion into the house mm. you're designing for them because you desperately want them to be happy in it yeah exactly exactly i mean i have so many stories about not not just with them but that's you know it's super important to me uh the happiness uh we started the conversation with that but the happiness that somebody has especially in a residential and you're doing a project like that if the energy is not consistently good you're ruining it you know and why would you want to have a fight with your architect or anybody else and then move into that house that's just terrible yeah really so what about like a recent highlight? A recent highlight like this? I can't say anything has been on this level uh, of just craziness. Um, okay, so uh, one of them was a few years ago, I got this email and it was to redo, and I can't mention the brand uh, due to project, but it was uh, it was to do this, to redo this brand's identity let's just say it's a big retail market retail store and uh, i'm looking at the pdf and it i i at this point i haven't figured out that they're asking actually me to do it and i'm looking through it and it has like all this inspiration and i'm like oh my god that's one of my projects that's like inspiration and in there it has like the best named architects my biggest heroes and i'm like reading through it and all of a sudden i literally started to hyperventilate in the office and one of the employees is like what's going on what's going on like holy shit like we have been uh, requested in the top you know there's three of us here to do an, an rfp for this brand and i'm like oh my god and we are in with this crowd and that just was incredible just to be even considered and to be in the same realm i, I was hyperventilating and it just went nuts i mean that was just so cool um one of the architects is the ones that did the, the broad uh, in downtown la and you're just like what if I'm compared to them in any regard? Thank you very much. You know, I just lost it. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. Another highlight was I recently, last year, I did a, um, a house renovation for a good friend of mine, James Jean, who is an artist that I met years before through another friend of mine, Brandon Shigeta, who went to, who went to Harvard with me. And he's a photographer, architect, and just an awesome, inspirational person. And he introduced me to James and I got to redo his house. And the original house that he bought was designed by Frank Gehry. And it was actually Frank Gehry's first residential commission. And just to be able to work on something of that pedigree is just an insane task and an insane ask. And and it was was so cool. And uh, James was like, the best client you could ever ask for because he just said go you know you know me 
figure it out. And it was insane because then at that point, you have the challenge of working with, I would say, literally a genius. Uh, at the same time, you have the pedigree of another genius, which is Frank Gehry. And then you have to stand in shoulder to shoulder somehow with these people and design something. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to, I knew at that point, he's going to have a, a kid and he's going to raise a family in there. So it's on a personal level, the stress of getting all those things done. But man, what a challenge, what a highlight. I, I, I just think that's, that was a career milestone for me and it just makes me happy. And it makes me happy that knowing that, you know, when I visit there and I play with his son, it's incredible. And it's the only project actually that the residential side yet that I've seen a kid born into, you know, and he's going to grow up there, which is so cool just to know that I hope my architecture affects him in a positive way. Because like the architecture in Tel Aviv affected you in a positive way. And, you know, conversely, exactly. the, the architecture that you didn't care for affected you as well or at least at least helped you share yeah. what you like oh my gosh that's so amazing you are gonna totally influence that kid yeah so so now that you're like firmly established as a architect with critical acclaim let's say what is your criteria for taking on a project I mean I know you've talked a lot about relationships mm. and authenticity is super important to you and you don't want to have fights with people yes. when a project comes into the firm what are the some of the key factors that help you decide which ones you want to take on and what excites you creatively it all it, and you know what it really stems down to either a person or a brand or a combination of the both you know because we do we do anything from you know small scale residential to larger scale to you know hospitality retail creative spaces commercial stuff all the i mean furniture design we we take on so many different things so to me i need to be in a position where first of all there's a kind of camaraderie with your client mm -hmm. i don't want to say collaboration I, I i think people throw that word around too much even though we are i gotta find a better word than that gotcha you are working together but there's definitely a, a tier, right? Somebody's hired you to be the professional in that. So you're not collaborating fully, but you are working together. So there has to be that sense of understanding that, you know, hey, look, we, see, we searched for DBA because of X, Y, and Z, and we want you to work with our space or our design team. I think that's super important to me to, to, to people get that right from the get-go. And then, and then the other part is the challenge, right? So I think one of the things that, people that do work with us do understand and the people that don't hire us don't understand is that we will never be and I will never be, you know, a specialist in coffee shops. You know, we did a coffee shop, it totally kicked ass, but I will never be the one guy you hire to do coffee shops. Yes, I want to keep doing them. And yes, I want to keep doing, you know, retail design, but I won't be that specialist. I will end up hopefully being the guy that, that does a coffee shop, the retail space, the art gallery, the museum, the sacred space, you know, a civic center, a, uh, a plaza, a, a restaurant, any of those things. And we'll never become, you know, the specialist in that. Um, so I, I look to find a client that wants to take that challenge on and understands the fact that we will use critical thinking to solve these problems and we will never go into our library or kit of parts to put it together because that doesn't smell of authenticity. And so you need to be able to, to have the clients that get that and understand that, you know? And so we're working on some really interesting things right now. And uh, geographically we're reaching and branching out further and further than LA ever had before, you know? So that's really exciting. 
but I, I want that. I, and, I, and I want the, the clients to, to feel comfortable with us. Uh, recently, a project that uh, a client asked me, how would you choose, you know, they interviewed me and they said, how would you choose an architect? You know, and I said to them, quite frankly, in a personal level, it's a residential project. I mean, did you get along with me? Did you get along? Did you hear? Did you trust me? Because if you don't from day one, you will never have that. I, I really, 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 really believe that. And so to me, it has to go both ways. So I, I think any job interview is uh, for both people. So I want to talk about spatial choreography. This is a really cool term. And I can see <laughs> why you would want to describe your work that way. But how does it how does it happen? Like, what are the thought processes or formal exercises that you do, you know, to achieve your compositions? Yeah. And I, I'm actually curious if it's a if it's a term that I defined. I, I've never looked it up, but uh, it is definitely something that I believe in. And you know what? It comes down to uh, my first visit to America, and that is in New York in the Guggenheim Museum. Mm. And Oh, that made such an impression on me, too, when I was a kid. It is. So you walk up to it the first time and you see this shape, this kind of like cake, white cake, wedding cake or whatever, upside down, tiered thing. It's an anomaly and it's a, you know, it's a spacecraft and wow, mm -hmm. you know, it's awesome. So that, that gives you that part about it. And I think that anybody who's even naive about design just, you know, will be intrigued by it. But the real drama is the fact that when you walk in, I could actually, with my hand up, I could reach the ceiling of the entry lobby space. And the door is a small revolving door. And then you walk in and you get a sense of light. And then you walk in a little bit further and boom, it's a multi-story atrium that is capped by this glass skylight cupola with, you know, light just shining through. And then you get that aha moment. Ah, that's what it is. And the door entry isn't on the corner of the building. It's kind of like three quarters in there and it's kind of hidden. And I think that got me started in understanding what spatial choreography means. And mm. one of the first projects that I think I did that on was Flip Flop House. And the way that you enter the house and the way that you meander through the house is very purposeful. And so you start off with a few slow, and I say slow because they're, they're shallow steps, you know, less than six inches deep, but long. So that gets you, you, you're playing with the users, the walking speed, mm -hmm. and then you're, you're confronted with a waterfall, mini uh, bridge. You kind of walk through this moat, turn left, then turn right, and you enter this semi underground space that's, uh, that has a moat all around it. You are at the beach, but you have no views of the beach at this point. I've blocked that away. And then you got to turn 180 degrees, go up the stairs. The stairs change from the concrete floors to the white terrazzo. And then as you're looking up, you get this just portal view of the sky. And that's it. And then when you get up there, you got to do another 180. And then you get the beach view. And that is super important because it elevates the importance of that beach view. It makes it much stronger. And it's the same thing. It's like if you walked into a room and all of a sudden, boom, open the door and you just saw everything, it's boring. Mm. And by the way, it's the same with people. If you meet somebody or you're dating somebody, it's that mystery and that intrigue of let's get to know them. 
and you're slowly, you know, so you have dinner and you do this and you do that and let's have drinks and blah, blah, blah. And you're meeting somebody and you're getting to know that part of that person. If, if you met somebody and you found out everything about them day one, either that person is shallow or it's just there's nothing there, you know, and you need to have that intrigue. So the most interesting people have those layers. And the same thing goes for architecture and the same thing goes for art. And the same thing goes for any creative fields. So to me, uh, spatial choreography is about, I say that, you know, even though I'm into music, I'm not like the world's best dancer. You know, I'm not a great dancer, but I understand the steps through it. And so when I design, I'm thinking about that path, you know, the diagram of like dancing, like, you know, whatever, the foxtrot, whatever it is. So we do the same thing in uh, architectural design. And that's what spatial choreography really means to me. I love it. I I. Well, I think an important distinction to make, too, is when you talked about the person, getting to know the person, it's not so much that the person you're getting to know is revealing things to you on their own schedule. It's almost like you're making discoveries about that person on your own schedule. So the discovery Mm -hmm. process is in the hands of the user. It's the same with music and art. Like when you're out in the world, when you Mm -hmm. discover something on your own that you, that really resonates with you, it means so much more to you than when somebody force fed it to you. So Mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you're sort of creating all of this opportunity for discovery along the way. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And, and that's what keeps, uh, to me, I believe, something timeless. So you could create, and I so believe in this, you could create a space that's completely white, uh, but it could be absolutely timeless in the sense that you will always discover something new with it. And it could be the sense of how you walk through the space and how the light shines through the space. And that's the Guggenheim, you know, and it's, it's about the light and it's about the travel through that space and time. And that's something that's so important to me as a designer you know it's super you have to have that continual discovery and you know is you know we go back to music if i put on headphones and listen to you know i listen to the beatles and and i all of a sudden like oh my god i never heard that trumpet yeah oh my god i never heard that person Mm -hmm. talking in the background it's great yeah those layers are so important so speaking of music you 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 yourself are also a musician Mm mm-hmm (laughs) yeah (laughs) you play you form bands uh, so that means you play not just by yourself correct how does music influence your character and what part of your life is it now uh it's a good one so okay it goes back to moving to america and it goes back to being a child in israel uh my mom played the piano for us when we were kids and evidently I turned to my mom when I was about seven years old and I told her when I grow up, I want to be a singer, but in English. And this was before moving to America. I used to sing along to the Beatles and I used to have this huge, I mean, huge, it's funny. It's probably only like five feet wide, but it was a Duran Duran uh, poster in my room, you know, and that was my world. So music taught me language in a way. Uh, and it also kept me afloat. Uh, it's literally like my go-to peace moment. So I, I started as, a, as learning the piano and I used to write music on that as a kid. And then I quit. I, I fucking hated it. Um, and I didn't hate the piano. I hated my teacher and I hated uh, the music that we were playing or the constructs of what I had to do. You know, so like, oh, I had to write a, a piece of music. And it, why did it have to be classical? I mean, that's such bullshit. You know, so I did that. And then 
I quit. And then years down the line, I was like, why don't I learn guitar? And that was when I was 13. So I learned guitar and that opened up a whole new world. And, and it was interesting because, you know, yeah, you mentioned musician. I, I, it goes back to the architecture thing. Like, I'm never an expert. Like, I'm not a good guitarist. You know, I know how to play guitar, but I'm not a good guitarist. But I know how to put things together. So I started to, you know, listen to all these songs and play along with them. And then I started to write music and probably drove my family crazy because, you know, I'm sitting in my room and my roommates in college. Oh, God, those poor roommates, because I would, you know, as you're writing music, you're like saying the same thing again and again and again and again in a different anyway. So music became a part of my identity, really. And what's interesting is, you know, those are my two major passions, I would say, like design, uh, you know, art. That's like the architecture world. And then the music. Uh, is another part. And the interesting thing is that architecture became my profession, but music is still the unadulterated passion that I do 100% for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really, it's really fun because of that. And I've made, you know, I've made friends through music. I, it opened, it opened up my, uh, my professional world, you know, through that. Um, it's great. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. It's really nice, I think, even for creatives to have a, a separate creative outlet that your livelihood isn't attached to, that doesn't have the pressures um, associated with yeah. you know, success or failure, but can still just be sort of free and childlike in its creative e expression. And the fact that you have both, I'm sure they inform each other, which is also really great. Absolutely. I mean, they, they do. And they inform each other in different ways too. Not maybe not even literally, but like for example, I've had uh, musician clients, mm -hmm. and that means that I'll be able to understand how they use the guitar or whatever instrument in the home or in the studio, right? Yeah. Or, or we'll be we'll be able to. Uh, I haven't jammed with any of my clients, but we have been able to discuss, you know, the technical aspects of recording something, and I think that's so fun. And then they're like, huh. He knows that. Well, and you would understand why acoustics would be something that you have to handle so sensitively. Yep. Just transitioning from music to something totally random. I was at an event and I, maybe I had a glass of champagne too many, but I heard that you <laughs> came face to face with a mountain lion. Yes. What? What is this story? Can you, can you retell it, please? <laughs> this is a really good one. And it's from a mutual friend of ours, Katie from Concrete Collaborative. So they invited me to one of their events out in Arizona. Jesus, I I'll never forget this. So they invited me out to Arizona to kind of talk to their sales force and to explain to them, I guess, like my passion about their product and, you know, all of that good stuff. Anyway, so I get there a half day early and it's beautiful. It's this place called Dove Mountain and it's in the middle of the desert and it's just gorgeous. And I'm like, you know what? I, I, I want to go for a walk and uh, I want to take some photos. You know, I, I love I love the photography aspect of just being out in the middle of nowhere and just doing that anyway. And I'm like, oh, my God, a sunset's going to hit. This is going to be great. I, go, I start walking, okay, and I, I see the sign, and all of a sudden the sign that says, you know, watch out for rattlesnakes, and then there's another thing like, watch out for like mountain lions, and I'm like, oh, this isn't good. I should go back to the hotel. So I go back to the hotel, and I talk to the concierge, and I'm like, hey, you know, uh, I want to go up and get some sunset photos, and he's like, okay, great. Here's a trail map. Here's some water, a little backpack they gave me. 
and be on your merry way. I'm like, all right, let's do this. So I'm going up the mountain, enjoying it. It's like getting uh, you know, to sunset hour and taking my photos. And I'll never forget it because it's the day that John Lennon died. And to me, it was, you know, it's a very important kind of like solace moment, December 8th. And it was, yeah, it was nuts. So I'm standing there and I'm taking in all the, the, the sunset and the quietness and the wind. And I'm like, hey, Dan, it's time to head back. <laughs> it's going to be uh, darkness soon. And uh, I go to walk back and I can't find my path. And I'm like, oh, this isn't good either. And I remember the guy at the lobby telling me, well, there's two ways to head back. Either you head back to the hotel or you take this other path and it'll take you an hour to get to the country club. I'm like, okay. And I start heading down the mountain, not working out. And I head this other direction. And as I'm heading the other direction, I'm like, okay, well, this is going to take me an hour. So I'm definitely going to be here in darkness. Not so cool. And I'm walking and all of a sudden I hear footsteps behind me. (laughs) And I'm like... Yeah, I'm like, uh, what the hell is that? And I'm like thinking to myself, it's either an animal or a creep. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like either one of those, you know? And I'm, and I'm like, uh, I'm going to continue walking. Oh, 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 by the way, moments before that, I had received a call from the planning department that we had received the good word that Tammy and Hetty's second like home on the beach was going to get approved. So I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> so I have that in my mind. At the same time, I'm walking down and I'm like, what the hell is that sound? I don't like it, right? So I'm walking with my iPhone. It's getting towards darkness and uh, I just got off the call. I turn around and I'm like, fuck it. I got to turn around. I got to see what's behind me. And uh, I would say about 40 feet behind. Yeah, about 40 to 50 feet behind me. Mountain lion staring at me. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, and I remember... Yeah, and I remember going to myself, I am not dying today. You know, this is not the death of me. And I'm like, this is total crap. Now, mind you, like uh, about a month before that, I'm at a job site with uh, an employee of mine. And this really big, nasty dog crosses over the, the fence and starts walking at us. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm like, this is not cool. And she's like afraid. I'm like, this is this is not okay. You know, like if I get bitten, it's one thing. If like one of my employees does, absolutely not. And I walked up towards the dog, you know, with like my hands up and the dog slowly backs off. And I'm like looking at this mountain lion. I'm like, I have two options right now. Either I turn around or this thing is going to keep tracking me or run me down. Or I double down and I literally put my hands up. And I slowly walk towards this mountain lion, slowly, 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 and it's not moving. And it finally like does the, you know, it does the turn and it walked away. And I'm like, holy shit, uh. I'm sweating. And, and it's like 45, 50 degrees out there, you know, it's the night and I'm, I'm sweating, sweating, sweating. And then I, I have remaining with me an hour to walk in the darkness oh. towards the oh my God. the country club. And I know this fucker is tracking me, right? Yeah. And uh, I finally get to... And, oh, and I remember, I'm like, here's the headline, you know, in like the Tucson Times <laughs> or whatever. City boy from Beverly Hills goes for a walk and dies by mountain lion. You know, something like that. I'm like, oh God, I already see it. So I'm walking down and I finally get to a fence and I'm like, oh, God, yes, fence. I'm like, civilization. 
And then I get to a gate. The gate is freaking locked. Uh. I hop over the fence. On the other side of the fence, there's a, a sign. And it says, please close something like this. Like, please close the fence behind you. We do not allow mountain lions oh. to golf. <laughs> I'm like, you assholes. I'm like, this is total crap. So then I see a road. And I'm like, oh, my God, a road and lights and civilization. And I get into, like, the country club house. And there are these two uh, clerks looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? I mean, I'm disheveled. I do not look like I belong anywhere. And they take me back to the, in a van, back to, to see my good friends at Concrete Collaborative. And I'm alive. And here I am, obviously. And you played chicken with a mountain lion and won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, yeah, maybe it's my spirit animal. I don't know what that means. Uh, respect the wilderness. Respect yes. the animals. <laughs> At that point, you're on, you're on the mountain lion's turf. Like, you're the one who's trespassing. Oh, absolutely. So. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, get this. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So, yeah, okay. So, obviously... The hotel knew about, you know, the mountain lines because it's signage. But then I get back, you know, after I've calmed down. And why did the, the, the concierge give me a backpack and a few water bottles? Because about a month before that, a woman died with dehyd- because of dehydration. I'm like, dude. This <laughs> they is weren't really just being courteous. Like, they were like, this person's a liability. So we're going to cover our ass. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much. But yeah, they should have given me like a, I don't know, like a rifle or just said, don't go out there, buddy. Yeah, or a warning. A warning would have been helpful. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was definitely traumatic. I mean, you could ask Katie, you should have seen her face. They're like, what happened to you? Wow. Well, we're glad you're alive and hopefully you'll be alive well into the future. So training your sights on the future, like what, think about all the potential you have yet to expand into and all the contributions you have to make to the world. Like what is your biggest, wildest, craziest, most beautiful moonshot goal? Oh, wow. So this is, uh, it's so hard for me, you know, because I almost, I'll say it this way. I don't believe in something that's moonshot. I wholeheartedly believe in go for everything and go for it with full force. Um, I've been, I guess, maybe lucky enough to get the things I want to, you know, or like work through them. And I really believe in like, and I would say this to anybody as like a, like a positive thing. Like the answer is no, unless you ask. So the chances are 50, 50 for something to go great for you. It's not, you know, so that's why I don't think anything is moonshot. Like, you know, so it's not like a 10% chance of something to happen. Yeah. Lottery is, you know, that's totally out of your control. But if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't pick up the phone or if you don't try, the answer is no. If you try, you, you've just raised that percentage by 50%, you know. So I could tell you some of my biggest dreams or the things I would love to do. And let's put them out there. Maybe, maybe this conversation will make that uh, a reality. <laughs> so here are my dreams. You know, I'm not a religious person, but I, uh, I do love uh, spiritual spaces. Um, I would love to design a great spiritual space of any type, you know, any religion, anything like that. I just, I think those spaces are so connected to the inner soul and they're so connected and they're talking about, you talk about like spatial choreography, talk about light and volume. 
that's like the epitome of that. You know, I really, really, really would love to get into that. And uh, maybe it's something that brings me back to my homeland and to do something in Jerusalem. And uh, that would be just incredible. And uh, maybe that could contribute, actually, if we think about And then maybe this is the moonshot thing, because something that I have totally no control over. But maybe that is a place of peace for all of the happenings in that zone you know uh maybe this would be that you know maybe i get hired to do that man yeah there we go we just put it together i didn't <laughs> that would that would be it you know that would be really it I, I would love to be able to contribute to that sense and to be able to make a singular space that people could get into and just um affect them in that regard beyond it you know the smaller places i would love to contribute you know is you know, to people's, you know, low-income housing, things like that, to really develop that, to find right ways to create good homes for people. Uh, other things that really, really interest me. I would love, you know, we talk about the Guggenheim. My, one of my biggest dreams has always been to do a museum. God, and hopefully let's put that out there. I, I think that would be just incredible. Those are pretty great dreams. Jamie and I are rooting for you. Thank you. Now that we're going <laughs> to put it on this podcast and blast it out all over into the atmosphere. I believe in that. I, I wholeheartedly believe in that. You put the good energy out there and that's, you know, things come mm-hmm. through. Yeah. To wrap things up, we would love it if you would let our listener. Oh, no. It's oh, the end. It's the end. <laughs> yeah. Tell us what project you have right now that people should be either getting excited about checking out now or looking out for and then let them know where they can keep tabs on you online well i think our most exciting and local to la project that's happening right now is bridge house uh and uh you can go actually to bridgehousela.com and get some more information on that one but that's a um a, a, a challenge i would say to all other architects in LA to kind of like, let's think forward. And it's kind of a way to, uh, you know, bring the case study movement back to LA. And it's kind of our spearhead of doing this. So it's, it's a house that's 210 feet long, 20 feet wide, built out of using a whole new structural steel system called bone structure out of Canada. It's a green, yeah. <laughs> it's a green building, obviously net zero using all these new technologies. And uh, it literally uh, is a bridge and bridges over a um, brook that's existing. Uh, and it's uh, got a 65-foot span. Uh, that should be done by November, December. And we're hoping to do our launch event for that in, um, this, uh, in January. So it'll be like a 2019, 2019, let's begin the year, right? And it will be an event space and a place that, you know, we could carry on the conversation and, you know, have other... Uh, other salon type events and uh, to be able to share that. So that's probably the project to watch out for right now. And then you could find us on uh, social media, DB Architecture. That's on Instagram, on Facebook and Twitter. And then if you're interested in seeing the kind of things that I myself am up to, it's DBRUNN009. And that's on Instagram as well. And obviously danbrun.com d-a-n-b-r-u-n-n.com to see some of our uh, work fantastic and that's it thank you so much you. for sharing your path and your stories and uh, the mountain lion <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for having me guys it's, it's been like it's been it's been real and, it's, and I really enjoy this and uh, 
I hope uh, it inspires you know further conversation and for uh, future creatives to you know to really take it on and take it on in full force with full passion. So we didn't get into it, but that guy clearly has a Beatles obsession. I know. He mentioned it a couple of times and I was like, hmm. I think three or four. Yeah. <laughs> I really loved hearing his story of coming to Los Angeles and being like, what a dump. <laughs> and then going to New York and being like, this place is fucking awesome. But also his story of being of, of going to the Guggenheim for the first time as a kid, like it is impressive. I mean, even as an adult, it's like, Wow. I remember going to the Guggenheim as a kid and it definitely made an impression on me, but it's one of those like sort of ones that I couldn't ever articulate. Mm. I couldn't like, it's just this vague memory. And I'm like, I don't know why I liked it, but I liked it. And then he took, he walked us through it, you know, with that entrance and then the space sort of like blossoming open with the skylight. And I'm like, yes, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. It was that a building had never affected me that way before. I didn't even have the language for it or understand what it was. But well, I liked him using the music metaphor. I thought that was really great because I mean, songs don't start out with the chorus, right? They start out with a verse and then they kind of build into this moment. There's a crescendo there. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's very layered. Well, and the Guggenheim also does this thing where it designs how you travel through it. Mm. And that's something that seems like it's really affected him. And so that dance, you know, that you do through the building, it's a powerful way to talk to the user. It's a powerful way to, to lead the user through this, yeah, choreography. Yeah, and you mentioned, like, discovery, like, on the part of the user or the, the person who's experiencing it. That he's leading, but he's not like pushing you, you know, it's it's kind of like a gentle nudge, like this is the way. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of up to you to decide. Yeah, he's not taking away any of your control. He's just laying it out in a way that's going to make it more dynamic for you. Mm-hmm. He's a very thoughtful person, but man, it sounds like he never thought of being anything other than an architect. No, but that's kind of cool. I think it's really cool because so many of the people we talk to are like, I didn't even know what that was until I got to college or I was good at art and math. So I thought architecture. But he has these really like profound experiences from his youth that crystallized how important architecture is to how we experience the world around us. And mm-hmm. he wanted to participate in that. And he also needed a little bit of ego <laughs> calibration, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that he talks about that, though, and, and is honest about it. As he was talking about photography, I just got very interested in the idea of VR as a way to document architectural works. Hmm. Obviously, we do like really pretty architectural photos for print and there are sometimes 360 tours like in real estate and video stuff, but VR would be such a fun way to catalog your portfolio and share with clients like and experience the flip flop house, you know, put on this headset and you can be there. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of stuff is starting. I know there's um, companies out there that are specializing in that now. And it's also for architects and interior designers to use while they're creating a project so they can walk their customer through the house before it's even built. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Technology is kind of awesome sometimes. 
Hey, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Please go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Dan's work. You can find Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review. It's one of the easiest ways you can help us keep on making this show because it helps would-be listeners find us so much more easily. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We absolutely love hearing your thoughts and feedback. So please connect with us on social and be our friend. Clever is produced by us, Amy and Jamie, also known as 2VDE Media, with music by L1011. Today's sponsor is brought to you by Nature Made, the number one pharmacist-recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish by Nature Made is a personalized vitamin regimen that removes the guesswork of selecting supplements that are specific to you. Backed by 45 years of science, delivered right to your doorstep, and costing on average less than $2 a day. Nourish is your one-stop shop for customizable supplements. Visit Nourish.com to get started today. 